Hello and welcome to episode number 11 of Earth Repair Radio. So there, there are these larger storylines that are happening globally, and those storylines um, help, help us to just understand the bigger picture. The regional to watershed scale is about the scale where people can really start actually making decisions and thinking about how climate change may affect their, their systems, their resources, their um, environment. Given, yeah, there's variability year to year, are we still seeing a longer, bigger trend? Um, and that, those are the questions that, that climate modelers are really trying to answer. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Milson, and today we have a special guest. We have Linnea Hawkins of the Oregon Climate Change Research Institute that's based here at Oregon State University. Linnea's interests are in applied climate science, including issues surrounding water, vegetation, land surface processes, and natural resources in a changing climate. So today we're going to talk about climate change forecasting and how you can figure out how it is that the place you live in is going to change in the upcoming years. Uh, I'd like to remind people that we have our upcoming permaculture design course online starting September 25th, 2017. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. So if you're interested in learning more and getting a certificate from Oregon State University, completing our permaculture design course, then please check the show notes. Without further ado, here is Linnea Hawkins. Good morning, Linnea. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's a nice overcast day in Oregon here in the summer. Yeah. Uh, a nice reprieve from the heat. Right. And luckily, it was not overcast like this for the full solar eclipse we just had here a few days ago. Oh, we got really lucky. Yeah. Was- yeah. So, hey, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know that you guys are very busy over there at the Oregon Climate Change Research Institute. So um, uh, I'm really uh, thankful that you could spend the time um, talking a little bit about climate change projections and how to figure out what is going to happen uh, in each different area of the planet as we uh, move into uh, greater climate change and instability. So I'm really, uh, really happy to get down to some of the nitty gritty on this today. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. So why don't you start by just telling me about what is it that the Oregon Climate Change Research Institute does and what's the work that you do within it? Yeah, absolutely. So the Oregon Climate Change Research Institute is um, a group uh, founded by Oregon State Legislature in 2007. So we are partially state-funded. We're housed at Oregon State University. and But the majority of our um, funding is provided by uh, larger government grants. So we have this, we host a, a number of major projects and centers um, one is the Oregon Climate Service, uh, which is the s- official state climate office for Oregon, um, and it serves as a repository for weather and climate information. Um, another big center we host is the Climate Impacts Research Consortium, 
which aims at uh, connecting scientists with decision makers um, at the regional scale uh, to support a range of both pu public and private sector stakeholders, um, trying to get um, the right tools in the hands of people who are making climate-related decisions. Hmm. Um, and then lastly is the uh, Northwest Climate Science Center, which is also part of our group. And we that group focuses on um, the application of climate research and uh, decision support tools to support uh, natural resource management. So in the broad kind of an overarching summary of what o Oregon OCRI is our acronym, O-C-C-R-I, um, OCRI does is um, we're a boundary organization. We try to bridge between scientists and stakeholders or decision makers or policymakers. So we try to serve as the kind of middleman between um, the scientists and those who may use the science in the future. And we help bridge that gap, create these um, uh, knowledge to action networks is what we call it. Mm. Um, and try and uh, f hopefully fill a need there. And so that's our kind of broader goal. Um, I personally am more interested in um, interactions between the between climate change and land surface processes. So um, as our temperatures and precipitation change and shifts, how will that affect our uh, biomes? So shrubs and trees and grasses and these uh, different different systems and how can we project how those may thrive or suffer in the future under different climate regimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really perfect. Uh, a perfect organization. You have a perfect role for talking about permaculture and uh, you know, in a sense, permacultures is a grassroots movement where people are adapting to climate change in their very own uh, homesteads and yards. So um, it's really interesting that you are, specifically talking about the effects on uh, land surface and vegetation because uh, plant design is a big part of uh, the uh, permaculture system. So um, one thing that I'm really interested in, just to, to set the foundation, is to really understand how is it that climate scientists come up with their information, come up with the projections. Um, I have looked at this document that you are one of the authors of, the third Oregon Climate Assessment Report uh, that was put out in January of 2017. It's really fascinating. You guys make a lot of predictions um, based on what you're finding out. And so I'm curious, like, what is the process by which you're getting this information and turning that into these really specific assessments of, you know, forecasts for the climate here? Yeah, of course. Um, so that's kind of a, a historical story, I guess. Um, it started really in the late 70s or early 80s when people started building these global climate models, which are a simulation of our planet. And um, they started off really elementary in the 80s. We just had, you know, the earth as a rock and the sun heats it up. It warms up the atmosphere that drives uh, circulation patterns and it creates the jet stream and it creates, you know, the climate systems that we experience on Earth today. So it really just started, originated as a um, way to help describe the world around us that we're seeing. 
So gradually over time, these models uh, improved and we started including land cover and snow cover and uh, clouds and oceans and next there's land surface processes. So we have uh, snow cover, vegetation, how much um, sunlight the snow reflects, um, whether the snow gets dirty and how that changes how much sunlight is reflected. Um, then there became they became more complex and started to include sea ice. Um, and then they incorporated more complex chemistry within the atmosphere um, and nitrogen cycling and, and ocean chemistry as well. And then deep ocean circulation. So there's these models evolved over time to become these just massive, complex ma systems of mathematical equations hmm. that describe the world we live in today. Wow. Um, they, we developed these equations just based on very primitive knowledge. Um, there's been a lot of experiments done. We say, okay, we know these certain types of trees grow in these certain conditions, right? They need this temperature band, this much, much moisture. Um, and we have a lot of that data. So we take all that data and incorporate it into the climate models themselves. So then we take these climate models and say, okay, well, how, how good are they? How well, a great um, way to test them is to say, well, how well can they simulate the historical observed earth system? Um, so we have the, and there's, there's um, lots of groups developing these. So there's, you know, some in America, some in China, some in India, um, many in Europe and Australia and all over the world, there's different centers developing their very own climate models with, you know, not a lot of collaboration. So there's mm. these very independent entities developing models of the earth. Mm. So then we take all of their models. So there's about 20 groups from the world, um, that have the highest level complexity of models. And we, and a, um, and they run them over the historical period, so 1900 or even back to 1850, all the way up to the present time and say, okay, well, given the four scenes that we know happened, um, for, by four scenes, I mean um, greenhouse gas emissions, I mean volcanic for, um, aerosols that are emitted in volcanic eruptions, um, the solar forcing, you know, sometimes the, we're closer to the sun, sometimes we're further away. So there's different, there's some variability in how, how's that word spelled? Forcing? Yeah, F O R C I N G. Okay. C um, so it's what drives the climate change okay. uh, or just climate in general. Okay. This group of models will then uh, simulate the past and say, okay, well, how well are they doing? And then we can make adjustments to them and tune them and say, okay, well, um, you know, maybe it's we're getting too many clouds because of certain certain equations in the model. So we can turn down different things like that until we have these really accurate simulations of the historical past. Hmm. Um, and so then once we have these um, models that are tuned to do a good job of simulating the past, we can uh, run them out into the future. And that gives us an idea of, okay, well, let's say, and as an experimental design, let's say that humans continue to emit greenhouse gases just as we do today, and we don't do any action to curb our emissions. What would the world look like? 
Or scenario uh, B might be, okay, well, let's say we do a really good job of curbing our emissions and are able to be carbon neutral by 2050, let's say. Then what would uh, the world look like? You know, how much uh, Arctic sea ice melt would there be by then? Um, And so these are the types of experimental designs that we use these climate models for. And um, there's been kind of a an effort to really structureize uh, the experiments experimental design so that we can compare the twenty best models to mm-hmm. each other, um, and that is called the the climate model intercomparison project. So it's this great big um, international um, or organization that says, okay, let's use these climate models and run them under the exact same experiment, experimental designs and see how different they are, see what type of answers we come up with, see how much variability there is in our projections. Mm-hmm. And how, how much variability is there in the projections? Yeah, so quite a bit. There's, um, I like to first to talk about variability. I like to first categorize it into three different categories. Um, the first is what's called internal variability. So that is just the natural chaotic nature of our weather. Weather is chaotic by nature. So in, in, it's built in intrinsically into the model is this, is this internal variability. Um, so that's, that's a pretty small amount of variability when, when you start averaging over 30 years, 60 year periods. Um, the second category of variability is model structure. So there's some, we don't, we don't have a perfect idea of how the world works yet, right? So we have to uh, build these models in different ways and we have to parameterize some of the things we don't know. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, there's some check and guesswork. There's some things we, we have to um, just do the best we can at because we don't understand fully yet. The state of the science isn't quite there. So there's model structure is the second category of variability. And then the third source of variability is humans. What are humans going to do in the future? So are we going to be able to curb our emissions or are we going to continue um, emitting greenhouse gases the way we do today? Um, so, And that is a much, much larger source of variability right. than the other two when you start projecting on the 100-year time scales. Yeah. yeah, and that's where we could hope that the human variable could actually be a beneficial aspect to the climate with massive reforestation and, uh, you know, soil carbon sequestration, all these great things that in in the permaculture world that we're working towards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you've got all of these, you've got these 20 or so supercomputers in a way that have been developing for, you know, 30 to 40 years, these climate models. Um, and they are putting out these projections and, you know, there's, there's definitely variability between these models, but I mean, are, are you guys really looking for the, the, the themes and the trends that seem to be, um, the same across the different models? Um, yeah. And no. So yes, we want to look for okay, how um, how are these models similar? But it's also very important to think about how they're different as well, um, because all of them are plausible. And mm. um, I, I like the quote that um, all models are wrong, 
but some of them are useful. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we have to think about how we can apply them intelligently. So that's kind of where uh, the, the human element comes in and says, okay, uh, let's use these projections and um, let's apply them in to, to our systems at the scales that we know. Um, and I think that the, the regional to watershed scale is about the scale where people can really start actually making decisions and thinking about how climate change may affect their, their systems, their resources, their um, environments. Uh, so so these, these great big climate model projections are usually on the order of 50-kilometer resolution. And that's great when you're simulating the whole entire globe, but when I want to think about, okay, well, how will this affect stream flow in my local you know, area, um, or how will this affect salmon or stream temperatures? Um, those kinds of questions are really hard to answer with these global climate models. So, right. <laughs> so that comes, the next phase is bridging that gap between climate models and um, decisions. So now we take these climate, this next step is to downscale uh, the climate model projections to, um, to be relevant to people on the ground, people thinking about making decisions. Um, so there's lots of ways to go about that. Um, one is statistical downscaling, and that's um, very similar to these uh, um, analog climates that we that you were talking about um that i think permaculture uses so you say you look at you incorporate um the elevation the slope the soil contents the local vegetation and all this local information that you have into the downscaling of the climate projections um and that can take this 50 kilometer resolution down to maybe only two to five kilometers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a much more, um, that's much more tangible and, yeah. and, um, useful to the user. Yes, definitely. Well, um, you know, it was interesting. I was looking at this, you know, the third Oregon climate assessment report and you guys talk a lot about, uh, the 2015, um, snowpack, this record low snowpack and how, that impacted stream flow and wildfires and such. And then here we are in 2017 now, and we had, you know, several months of record rainfall here in the Pacific Northwest. We had record snowpack in California and uh, throughout the Northwest. And so, you know, how do people... How, how are people supposed to think about that when, we're, when the climate models say we're going to have drought, but then suddenly we go into extreme wetness? You know, so I'm sitting here going, okay, should I be thinking about, you know, is this a new trend now that's going to last for some years? We're going to have these extremely wet winters and, and soggy springs, which you know has a huge impact on agriculture. Um, or should I be planning for more drought and low snowpack? Like, you know, how's a, how's a regular person supposed to to remedy these? fluctuations <laughs> yeah that's a really good question and it's it's hard for us so when a climate modeler talks about trends we're talking about um a trend over 30 years mm-hmm. and we don't think about we're not we wouldn't take we wouldn't look at a trend at any shorter time scales because five over five years it is 
there's a lot of variability and we experience that as humans from year to year, um, going from a very wet year to a very dry year and maybe another dry year, then back to a wet year. Um, those are the kind of time skills that, that, you know, me as an individual can, can wrap my head around and understand. But that's why we use the historical data and these larger modeling simulations to say, okay, well, given, yeah, there's variability year to year, are we still seeing a longer, bigger trend? Um, and that, those are the questions that, that climate modelers are really trying to answer. Um, and there is some, some, to some degree, we are seeing these larger swings of um, extreme events. So, so going from a really extreme drought to a uh, really wet year um, with extreme precipitation. So those types of things are part of the climate story. Um, but there, they, there is a lot to be said about just natural year-to-year -year variability. It's, it's big, and it's hard for us as humans to, um, to really perceive a larger trend out of that large year-to-year -year variability. Mm -hmm. So 2015 um, in the Northwest uh, was this interesting phenomenon because we had a, a very average year um, with – respect to precipitation. But because it was an El Nino and because we had this great big blob of warm water off of the, um, um, in the North Pacific Ocean, um, we had these really warm winter temperatures. So it was this, this perfect example of what climate models project our future to look like. Um, so it's, uh, that is warmer temperatures around, you know, one to two degrees and pretty average similar pr precipitation to what we experienced today. So, so what happened in 2015? Well, uh, we received average precipitation, um, really warm winter temperatures, and a lot of that precipitation fell as rain rather than as snow. So uh, we then come spring, we don't have the snow reservoirs that we usually have to provide stream flow and reduce uh, fire risk and provide water to irrigation and cropland and, um, and keep the stream temperatures cool for salmon. So all of these different impacts that we're projecting for roughly 2050, we got this great salient test of mm -hmm. in 2015. Um, and, and our, and our systems really failed. We had, we struggled with reservoir management. We struggled with, um, seeing different species of salmon, um, have, um, having really low returns. Mm -hmm. We had, um, a lot of irrig irrigation trouble and, and water wars over that. And, uh, drought was, these extreme drought declarations were declared all over the West, um, so that, that was this, this salient test of, of our systems and, and what, what we may need to work on and how we need to be more resilient to this climate, sh this shift, um, by 2050, say. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's really, it's really fascinating, especially right now, you know, there's, there's a lot of big fires. I just drove over from Eastern Oregon a couple of days ago and there's there's huge fires even though we had this incredibly wet winter the summer temperatures have been so high that it seems like that didn't really sustain things into the dry season and now it's just really really uh ignitable out there and and part of that is because of what's so wet so think of a um a grassland area where 
um, if it's a wet winter, you know, moist spring, we get a lot of growth and there's a lot of grass there. And then that provides a lot of just above ground carbon. And mm -hmm. as the moisture is depleted come July and August and the temperatures rise, there's a lot more fuel for these fires available. So mm -hmm. There's a, a, a much broader story than just did we have a wet winter, um, yeah. especially in the eastern grasslands hmm. um, here in Oregon. Yeah. How's the common person supposed to figure out really what an accurate climate change projection is for their area? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a, and it's a tough question. Um, so we have these great big climate models. And the people working with them are really computer scientists. They're quite skilled. So they get this data output and then they say oh great we provided all of this data and um, the user can now go take this data and use it however they want well that's not not trivial right there's, there's massive amounts of data it's in very complex formats and hard to work with and you have to be you really have to be an expert to try to go download this data and work with it for your site. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel really lucky the fact that you guys are there and that I have this whole summary I can just read where you pretty much put it all into very, very easy to understand terms. But I'm just thinking about other people that don't necessarily have uh, a resource like like Ocri. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's challenging. And there needs to be more of a, a storyline to it. And that's kind of our goal here is to give people the storyline um, behind the data. Um, but there are groups that are taking this, this, this need has been recognized, right? So there's this gap in, okay, the end user and the data available, um, there, there's a large gap there. So a lot of groups have been aiming to better make the data more accessible. Um, so one really good tool here in the Northwest is called the Northwest Climate Toolbox. Um, and this is, these are, there's some tools like this in Europe, there's tools like this in China, um, but I, you know, I'm most familiar with this one, so I'll describe it and it kind of um, is applicable in other places. So what the Northwest Toolbox does is it allows you to um, go in and select which which of the models you like. Maybe you want a all of the model, the mean of all of the models. Maybe you want a certain model that you care about, or maybe you want an average of just five models. You get to go in and start with selecting your climate model. Then you go and say, okay, well, here's the region that I care about. Okay, select that. Um, now here's the variables I care about. So, so what am I interested in? Um, uh, maybe I'm thinking about the how the length of the growing season might change, or how cold hardiness areas will change, or maps of projected crop suitability zones is another um, one. Or maybe I'm interested in fire. Um, how will aridity change in the future? Or uh, drought and stream flow. What about this local stream that I live by? How will it, um, how is it projected to change? Is that shift going to be earlier in the year or is my watershed really driven by snowpack? And so, um, I'm less at risk or, so, you know, those kinds of questions. Um, so this toolbox allows you to, um, bridge that gap between, uh, the large-scale global climate models, and the questions that you're asking here on the ground. Um, so that's the Northwest Climate Toolbox. 
But there's a lot of these tools popping up all over because the need is there. People are thinking about, um, you know, their almonds and whether they will be able to grow these certain uh, high high productivity crops in the future in the same areas or will they need to shift their plantations to more suitable climates. Yeah. Yeah. And as you know, <clears throat> in the in the previous podcast episode, episode 10, where I interviewed Dave Bainline, we talked about tools for designing with climate change. Um, we talked about climate analogs, which is finding your, finding a, another climate somewhere else in the world that is actually analogous to your own climate, um, you know, similar conditions. And some of the research I've done on climate analogs um, has also shown people locating climate zones that it's projected that their climate will turn into. For instance, you know, for instance, I, I, when I look at the, there's a, you know, the Köppen-Geiger climate classification system, it's, you know, the most well-known climate classification system in the world. When I look at that and I see where Oregon is, uh, it's, you know, temperate climate with dry summers and warm summers, uh, it may be that I just need to look to the next classification system down where I look at parts of California that are uh, temperate climate with dry summers, dry and hot summers. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm wondering if, if, if there's, there are tools like that sort of easy for people to um, use some of these existing climate classification systems to just locate themselves in a different climate type and, and look at how that climate type is functioning in another part of the world um, as, as a tool for projecting what their climate's going to be become. Does that make sense to you at all? Yeah, I thought that's an excellent, excellent way to go about it. Um, the analog, there's, uh, you kind of have the storyline of, okay, well, our latitude will be shifting northward. So we can look to Northern California and say, okay, maybe we'll be similar to that in the future. Um, but the story is more complex in a lot of regions. So you will have to um, use these lo- global, these projections to get the story for your area and then go seek out somewhere that's similar. Um, it isn't always just a northerly shift, right? But that, yeah. that is a great tool for it, and it really helps us think of um, how to prepare and adapt for the future. Another, another thing that, that we like to promote when we're talking about climate adaptation um, is the term climate resiliency. So I I talked about this season to season, uh, year to year variability. And um, if you have a system, whatever your system is that you're interested in, and it is resilient to these drought years and these really wet years, um, then your system is going to be resilient to a larger shift in climate in general. Um, So talking about just year-to-year variability and resiliency to that variability really is is implementing these adaptation strategies in the exact same way. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, when we've, per- permaculture basically is adaptation strategies to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I'm just thinking about some situations, like I'm thinking about uh, a place that I love very much up in the Cascade Mountains here, Brighton Bush Hot Springs that right now is threatened by a very large fire, the Whitewater Fire. Mm. And um, 
it's this combination because there's, I mean, there's tree mortality, you know, and so suddenly the tree mortality creates a dug fir forest and hemlock that's a lot more able to carry a large scale fire, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's like, there's these complex things. So you might like, okay, my forest doesn't normally carry large fires. Okay. But then once you start to have a a climate change induced shift in vegetative type, suddenly you've got a lot more dead wood. Suddenly you've got this whole other scenario that didn't even exist. And so it just seems like there's, there's so many pieces for someone to try to balance and so many different layers for them to actually really understand what are going to be the key driving forces that they need to plan for um, in the future with climate change for their place. So, yeah, I I don't know if you, do you have any comment on that or I can go on? Uh, No, you make, you make a really good point. These um, uh, disturbance induced biome shifts are something that we really don't have a good handle on or a good understanding of um, the true risk or the potential for it. It's a large uncertainty. Um, in the future. And with forest mortality being um, so highly variable uh, from drought-induced mortality, then the drought uh, induces some susceptibility to bark beetle attack, then this dry wood increases the susceptibility to uh, large fires. Um, There's a, a really complex story, and you really have to understand your local system in depth uh, to to really tell that story well. Yeah. So are there some larger patterns that we can use to really understand climate change? I mean, I want to run by this thing that I have heard quite a bit, which is that the the poles are heating faster than the equator because the ice is no longer a white reflective surface and the dark ocean absorbs more heat, and that that's actually weakening the jet stream, right? That the, the the temperature differentiation between the equator and the poles was what really pressurized the jet stream. Mm-hmm. And so with the warming of the poles uh, at a greater proportion, um, that the jet stream is now weakening and stalling and kind of undulating more deeply. So if there's a if there's a, a high pressure system um, the jet stream it will go around that high pressure system and it'll stay for longer, which means a longer drought and longer heat, or the jet stream will be fixated on one point for longer and that will create flooding. Um, is this something that is, is this something that's considered true? Like this type of pattern, uh, in the greater climate science world, or, or are there other patterns that can help us to understand what is going on on a, on a, kind of simple layman's Mm -hmm. visual level yeah that's absolutely you have that exact exactly right um the the temperature differentiation between the gradient between the tropics and the arctic is is going to be um decreased as the poles warm faster um and yes you're exactly right it's driven by the uh decline in sea ice which used to reflect a lot of sunlight now it's this dark blue ocean that absorbs a lot of sunlight so the poles are warming twice as fast as the equator, and that that decreases that gradient, just like you said, and it um, allows for the jet stream to slow down. And as it slows down, it undulates further, and that creates these uh, 
increases the probability for more extreme events. Or So there, there are these larger storylines that are happening globally, and those storylines um, help, help us to just understand the bigger picture. You know, it uh, helps us understand sea level rise due to both thermal expansion and melting land ice and glaciers. Uh, it helps us understand the expansion of the subtropical ar- arid areas. So um, southwest U.S. may ex- start to expand northerly. Um, it helps us understand the the changes in ocean circulation. And those there are these larger storylines. The best source to understand these storylines is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, Assessment Reports. So that's the IPCC. And they put out a series of assessment reports. Um, the most recent was AR5, Assessment Report 5. Um, and they, they, it's an international group that compiles all of the latest uh, state of the science and, and takes only the most, the most um, rigorously tested and, and robust conclusions and summarizes them for the globe. And these reports are fantastic for when you're talking about these global, larger picture storylines. And that is the, it's the source, it's the di- climate dictionary that you go to um, and trust when you need to look at these global pictures. And they do break it down regional, so you can kind of look into North America as a whole and start to understand what North America may start to experience, or India or China, Um but it doesn't go more into depth than that. Um, to get at the local storyline, which is what most of us really need care about at the end of the day, um, you're really going to need to go to your to your local uh, assessment report. And each there's a lot of these going on. So we have the national assessment report for the U.S. So that looks at the the country as a whole. Um, then we have these climate assessment reports for the Northwest, the Southwest, the Southeast, and then even smaller than that is the Oregon climate assessment report. And so these really do scale down until you're getting at a level that is is relevant to the to the questions that people are asking on the ground. Right now, what do you feel like the coverage is? I mean, I know that in the Northwest we have you, and there's other organizations, but for people that are listening to this from different areas, what's the chance that you are going to have a high quality assessment report for your area? Well, it's just really a story of how developed your nation is. Um, So Europe, yeah, we have absolutely fantastic assessment reports um, and they're being done um, at, at levels and that really matter and answer, answer these tough questions. Um, but if you look to some of the developing areas, um, there's a lot less being a lot less being done, and that is starting to shift and starting to change. A lot of the um, research groups are recognizing the need to to do these assessment reports for developing areas, um, and so that is growing. Scientists, you know, they like to we do where we live first, right? That's where we care about the most. (laughs) So it's, it's growing and, um, there is definitely still a grand need for this at local levels. Um, and that's part of the climate equity question, um, plays into a much larger economic and philosophical problem. 
Right. Even even the information is concentrated where the wealth is concentrated, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, are there any other, you know, aside from that jet stream pattern I mentioned, I mean, there, are there any other bigger patterns that you could share that would help people's general understanding? Well, of course, there's a lot of um, broader storylines. Um, we can start with the ocean, um, which is the driver of all of our weather and climate in general. Um, the ocean absorbs about a third of the anthropogenic or human emitted carbon dioxide. So all of that CO2 then dissolves into the ocean water and creates um, more acidic waters. And these acidic waters make it really challenging for shellfish to calcify um, their shells. And these calcifying organisms are typically at the base of the marine food web. Um, and so this can have cascading effects uh, through higher trophic marine fish to birds, to mammals, um, and even to the people that rely on these resources. So um, ocean acidification is kind of one of the bigger storylines that um, has potential to um, be a much larger problem than we, than we see it to be, um, than we've seen it so far. Yeah. Um, another... I think that we storyline that we don't understand very well is um, the melting permafrost in the Arctic area. There's a lot of uh, methane stored in these permafrost layers. And um, one, we don't know how much. And two, we don't know the risk of how fast that melts and how much that puts how much more CO2 that puts into the atmosphere and how that increases the rate of warming, which then you know, melts more permafrost. So there's a, a storyline there that is highly uncertain, um, but something that a lot of really smart people are thinking about. Hmm. I think that there's a fundamental need to think about these stories in terms of the hydrologic cycle. Thinking about your local watershed and how how that precipitation is received, um, how it is then transferred all the way through irrigation systems, stream flow, and then back up to the ocean. And this watershed scale decision-making um, is is the scale that really needs to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah, because it, seem, it seems like when we look at global CO2 emissions, that's just a completely overwhelming level for the average person to be able to address this. But when we look at watershed scale, and we look at how uh, our particular piece of the hydrologic cycle is retaining soil and soaking water into the aquifer, suddenly that becomes a more tangible place to um, make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm wondering about some other just specific examples of climate change forecasts for different regions of the world. Um, just, just Sir, you know, some of the people listening here are going to be living in the in the Northwest like we are, mm -hmm. or some are going to be living, you mentioned the U.S. Southwest. So I was wondering if you could just go through some some projections that we are fairly confident about in, in your organization. So starting to think about um, coastal communities and what uh, risks they will be experiencing, um, there's a lot of uh, research that that leads to the school of thought that sea levels are rising and um, there are increases in wave heights uh, that will likely increase the risk of coastal erosion and flooding all along, um, especially the U.S. West Coast. 
Um, so estuaries, for example, provide really crucial habitat for a lot of species of juvenile salmon and shellfish. Um, and climate change is expected to alter these estuarine habitats um, through changes in sea level, ocean acidification, um, increasing water temperatures, changes in um, upwelling, and then also uh water coming in from the land system. So runoff and sedimentation. I mean, at this point, we've heard, you know, we've heard all of these different doomsday scenarios about ocean levels rising, you Mm -hmm. know, to the point where, I I mean, I I recently actually read this. I read a fantasy novel called Earth 2100 by Kim Stanley Robinson. The Antarctic ice sheet basically collapsed and fell into the ocean in this one, not in one foul swoop, but in a couple major events and Mm -hmm. raised the entire level of the ocean fairly dramatically in a short period of time, you know, where, you know, it goes sort of counter to Mm -hmm. the, the more gradual rise of ocean levels. Um, And so, uh, you know, it's, it it seems really tricky for a coastal person to really know actually what to expect. And if it's even really possible for them to know what to expect. And, you know, it's, it's hard, it's a hard reality for someone to think that where they are is basically going to be under the water. And the only option they have is actually to relocate themselves, you know? So, so how, how's a person? Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think, what do you think a coastal dweller should be, should be thinking about at this point? Uh, That's a very, you know, something that we need to start thinking about. And oftentimes it's in these, uh, lower income coast, uh, island communities that rely on fishing for their economic welfare and are most at risk to sea level rise and are genuinely already thinking about the potential to have to relocate. Um, and do these countries that are the bigger polluters, the more developed countries, what do they owe to these, to these poorer countries that need, are going to undergo these relocation costs? And, and that's the kind of climate equity question that a lot of people are thinking about. And, and yes, there's this, this sense of kind of doomsday, um, expectation for climate change. But there's also a line of reasoning that says this is this is the, the one chance that we are going to have to to rebuild society in a in a better vision in in the essence that I think permaculture really gets at is is how can we live sustainably and and in harmony with this this world that we live in. And yeah. it Yes, there is some doomsday, but there's also this this vast opportunity to change our systems and to recreate the way that we live with our planet. Yeah, yeah, totally, definitely. So, I mean, you, you'd mentioned coasts. Could you just go through and maybe talk a little bit about valleys? Yeah, of course. In valleys, there's usually a lot of uh, residential and urban communities, and in the um, Willamette Valley, for example, we expect to see more extreme heat events, um, and these events are expected to be longer in duration and come more often and be more intense, Um, and that will expose people to greater risk of uh, heat-related illnesses, um, and there's a lot of health administrations that are considering uh, some of these extreme heat events to be a top climate risk facing public health. 
Um, so uh, there's extreme heat events as one possibility. Um, summer water scarcity is another. These uh, valley communities typically depend on uh, snowpack, like I was saying, for runoff in the, during the summer months. Changes in that may may affect how we manage our reservoirs um, to maximize water storage uh, for the dry season, while simultaneously min- trying to minimize flood risk during the wet season. So there's a complex trade-off there. Uh, and the declining snowpack uh, may lead to this earlier snowmelt um, in the headwaters, and that when combined with greater summer water demand from the urbanized areas, um, there's expected to be some some increase in summer water scarcity. Hmm. Yeah. There's urban um, and agricultural uh, development over the past century has also altered a lot of the ways these uh, valleys look. Uh, They used to be oak woodlands or savannas or grasslands or even wetland habitats, Um, but now we've urbanized them and turned them into these agricultural areas where we require more water than we once used to. So there's a lot of the uh, land use, land cover change effects um, that may overshadow the direct climate effects, but also amplify the uh, the problems that climate creates as well. Yeah. So uh, those are a couple concerns for valley regions. Um, in the higher uh, Cascade Range, for instance, um, or the uh, Sierra, um, we expect winters to warm uh, faster than summers in some areas. So mm-hmm. we'll see warming winter minimum temperatures. Um, and that, uh, as we saw in 2015, means that precipitation falls less as snow and more as rain, which results in this shift um, in much of the Cascade Range being dominated by snow melt, um, shifts to a mixed rain-snow regime, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, and then mountain ranges that are lower that are already in that mixed range snow regime may transition completely to a, being rain dominant. And that will fundamentally shift the hydrology, hmm. um, affects stream flow, timing and amount of these water resources like I was talking about before. Um, the forests in these areas are also at risk uh, to both disturbance and transformation. So those warming winter minimum temperatures that I was talking about um, the, that's typically what kills a lot of these bark beetles, for instance, are cold winter nights. Right. If those, if we don't receive those cold winter nights, these insects are allowed, are able to uh, grow and expand their populations year round. And that's kind of a, a main driver of why we're seeing these expansive bark beetle attacks combined with the um, increased susceptibility due to um, the drought that, that decreases um, tree resiliency. Um, it helps spread these diseases, further creates the uh, dry, dead wood that is uh, fuel for larger wildfires. Hmm. Yeah. So those are definitely some tangible things that people that live in those types of environments can plan for uh, when we can assess the more extreme um, you know, extreme disaster events that might, might hit us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any, do you have any words for anybody that lives in say the desert Southwest and more of really an arid desert region? Well, they, I think are 
quite resilient. Um, so they already have been coping with these um, water limited resources for some time. And I think they're quite equipped to deal with this, um, these changes. But again, shifting stream flow seasonality is going to be a huge one. Um, we're seeing massive, massive forest disturbance and transformation um, in the southwest due in part to bark beetles, but primarily to drought um, over the last five years. So those forest transformations um, are going to be a, going to put, again, the increase the risk of greater wildfire activity. Um, and also uh, thinking about challenges for other ecosystems ecosystem services, um, such as fisheries and those in those areas, uh, are going to have a hard time keeping their stream temperatures down with less runoff. Um, and that makes it very challenging for, uh, fish to return to their, to return upstream to spawn. Um, do you know anything about possible projections in tropical areas? Well, so the general overall storyline, um, I can't get into specifics, but a warmer atmosphere um, can hold more uh, water vapor in it. So the warmer the air temperature, the more water is in that atmosphere. So as we increase the atmospheric temperatures, we increase the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere. And, and that's expected to increase the amount of precipitation in the tropics um, to some degree. So that there are some uh, projections indicating that the tropics will get wetter. And that's the, the fundamental storyline is that the wet get wetter, the dry get drier. Um, and so that's kind of a, a blanket story, but there are definitely some, some specifics in there that will be very variable for your, re for your region. Yeah. So really people are just going to have to hope that they have some really good, um, more specific regional projections um, because it sounds like for a lot of this, there's really these general trends, but how each basin and each side of the mountain and each watershed is actually going to be impacted is really going to be very site specific. And ultimately, like, you know, in permaculture, we talk about intensive site analysis, right? And site uh, and observation. And so really someone's own analysis and observational skills uh, combined with some of these more macro projections may be their best tool in figuring out what's going to happen in their specific location. Exactly. That's you're, you're right on there, Andrew. And I think that that's where the science is headed is saying, okay, well, we need, it's not good enough anymore to provide people with these even regional projections. We need site specific projections. So we need to work on individual projects. And that's kind of where Ocri or we come in and say, okay, who's asking this question? What site are they concerned about? What variables do they care about? How can we match them up with a scientist who can then provide them with the tools for their analysis and how can we get them to work together? So, so there is a, not necessarily a need for more data, but a need for more conversations mm. and, and helping expand those conversations to, to not just the scientists and the resource manager, but the but individual stakeholders as well. Yeah. Great. And it sounds like that's basically the service that you guys are providing, which is really wonderful, which is... 
we're working towards it. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely a, a, a greater need. Yeah, great. Well, hey, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and really breaking down. I feel like I have a lot better understanding of um, how, you know, firstly, just how we arrive at some of the information that's out there. And that's really good to know um, in order to be able to trust it and also to understand what we don't know and Mm -hmm. at what scale the information's valid at. So I really appreciate you shedding light on that. Um, Is there anything else that you're, you know, what are you working on now uh, with your organization that um, that's interesting to you that's coming up? Uh, Well, we um, currently, one of the projects that I'm personally involved in is, is working on looking at how forest disturbance uh, may drive these fundamental biome shifts, like you were mentioning, uh, where where something else, where there used to be a, a forest of a certain type, a large-scale disturbance moves in, and then something entirely different fills that space. And how can we um, plan for that? How can we start to adapt to that? And how can we manage more efficiently manage that? Um, so those are the types of questions that we're working on at the moment. Um, and I think that there's a lot of work to be done in that area as well. But I, I really think that, that what I would like to convey is that there are a lot of scientists doing work at scales that matter. And there's a lot of people asking questions, the right questions at scales that are relevant to them. And we, and connecting those people are, is how we're going to uh, move forward and really adapt to this climate change. And that's the, the niche that permaculture fills, I think. But, but I would like to encourage, encourage the, the stakeholders, people asking the questions, to reach out uh, to their local science group, whether it's the USGS, whether it's um, any type of organization or just people at a university or, or any NGO, p- perhaps, because they're, we really are looking for people um, who want to engage and and further the transfer of the knowledge to the stakeholder and and in the other direction as well because a lot of times um, people on the ground have really important knowledge and and fundamental understandings of their systems that w- that the uh, researchers can learn from as well. So I'd like to encourage the conversations and and hope that people can can start to to expand that um, network. Awesome. Great. Yeah, that's a really, really uh, potent statement. And hopefully some of the people listening to this uh, will take you up on that and have a greater conversation so we can all uh, have a better understanding. And ultimately, from the permaculture perspective, have a design (laughs) for this whole thing. So yeah, so thank you so much, um, Linnea. I really appreciate it. And uh, hope you have a great day. And I look forward to seeing uh, further work coming out of your organization. Yeah, great. Well, thank you, Andrew. It was a pleasure having you on. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. You as well. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.